Like many product origin stories, this begins with a problem. Oreo was looking for a buckle and strap that was strong but also small and light and could take the rigors of constant jostling without loosening up on a bikepacking trip. Nothing existed, so he decided to make his own. Continuing our series on interviewing cottage industry manufacturers in the bike industry, I interview Uriel from Austere Manufacturing to learn all about the things that go into making a simple buckle. From the teeth and how it interfaces to the webbing, to having a custom spring made and the choice from moving from a stainless steel pin to a titanium pin. Trust me, you will never look at a simple buckle the same again after this podcast. Before we get into it, if you guys appreciate this content and want to support it, please consider joining us on Patreon or consider buying a sticker from the store at pathlesspedal.com store. Once again, pathlesspedal.com store. Let's get into it. So how, how does one get into the buckle business? Like what was your, your background <laughs> leading up to this? So I went to school for industrial design at Carnegie Mellon. Um, in sophomore year, I guess I was trying to find a backpack that I liked. Um, I couldn't find one. And so I decided I'd make my own and got a sewing machine and started sewing. And um, three years later, I guess, had something that resembled a backpack. But it was a very process. Uh, soft goods in general, just really, I don't something about it really, uh, I enjoyed. She bought a uh, Surly Pugsley and went and did the TNGA, the Trans North Georgia trail not as a race just drove down there and biked it me and my partner and uh another friend and we made all the gear and we had never gone bike packing and it was um my, my brother saw us making the gear and he was like i think you're just gonna go down there and fix broken gear <laughs> um and we actually did uh the first hill we rolled down we went through a tiny little drainage ditch and one of my buckles broke oh no um, <laughs> so uh, I thought he was going to be right, but we actually completed the trip. It was a lot of fun. Uh, that buckle broke across all the bags we made and we kind of just made do. But uh, I also did a lot of work in the Robotics Institute there um, and ran uh, the Robotics Club machine shop. And so kind of was introduced to machining and really fell in love with that in high school. I grew up uh, as a whole garage full of tools. Uh, so I was always playing in there, built like a boat and a car and suits of armor and trebuchets and, uh, you know, potato cannons and ski bikes <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. In, in that shop, well, if, if you've built stuff, you know, locational accuracy is a, is a challenge. Like you try to match a whole pattern for, to mount something, like even as simple as hanging a power strip on your wall and then you don't get it lined up properly and it's annoying and it's difficult to get right. Um, so the first time I saw a milling machine where you can just turn a knob and read out thousands of an inch, I was like, wow, this is <laughs> amazing. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I, I, I did a lot of um, built all sorts of things uh, through their lunar landers and uh, ground effect vehicles um, simultaneously working in the costume shop uh, of the theater department, ended up getting some internships and ended up. Actually, like, so soft goods design is just not very common, especially people who can actually make prototypes um, and have a very good sense of how parts are going to come, how the sewing machine operator is going to actually put together something you design. And so I ended up getting a good amount of work doing exactly that, where oftentimes a company had started off with a designer that was kind of like, aesthetically, here's something nice. And they'd work together and 
but then when it came time to actually make something, um, the design needed adjustment to make all the panels go together and so on. So that was kind of it. Um, through that whole time, I was kind of always looking for buckles uh, and couldn't really find what I wanted. So I mentioned like breaking a buckle on our first bikepacking trip. You can buy these crazy fancy fabrics nowadays, right? Like Dyneema and X-Pack and all this crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. That's super cool. And then you have a team of uh, designers spend weeks uh, refining these designs. And then they're literally held together with like 15 to 30 cent pieces of plastic. Um, <laughs> so yeah. I guess for, for those that don't know, like um, there, there's, there's like kind of a limited-ish catalog of, of hardware that people that, you know, create soft goods have access to, right? It's not like they can just come up with the, their own hardware, if, even if they wanted to. There's, there's, there's like some limitations. Yeah, there's a number of companies. I mean, there's a ton of companies out there. I would say uh, high-end products, if you if you look at the buckles, high value. I, um, injection molded plastic um, is very inexpensive, is quite, uh, it, it delivers for 90% for of folks. I think it's a good choice uh, given, the, given the price. And, and yeah, so you, as a designer, you would sort of go through these catalogs, go through your samples and go like, okay, we really want something that looks like this or functions like this or feels this way. And then in the end, you kind of settle for what's available. <laughs> I would say one advantage of working at some bigger companies, um, some of them do kind of have the volumes to start doing custom stuff. And you do see that from time to time. Uh, that said, like designing a good buckle, as I've learned, <laughs> is a lot more challenging than it seems and there's a lot of sort of funny failure modes or like does it jam when you press it together does it pack with snow how does it deal with sand so i think if you're a company that specializes in soft goods design um you're not necessarily going to then try to bite off a big uh <clears throat> technical chat sorry uh challenge of designing your own buckles so you tend to pick from catalogs that exist and if you talk to soft goods designers, that's often a, a kind of a frustration because the, the the quality, say you want to make something that feels really quality and looks great and, um, you know, feels good in your hand. Um, and this is just an opinion, but my feeling is that uh, the plastic kind of falls short. Um, mm -hmm. For me, it did. And then also from a functional perspective, especially for bikepacking uh, or other other sports where you have a lot of jostling over hours and um, you, you tend to have to keep tightening things. So those are the two frustrations for me. I actually just want to be able to send the money and get a really nice buckle that feels nice and looks great. I'm using this thing every day. So that's what I was after. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Austria Alpine, the Cobra buckle. Um, mm, anyway, so. it, it's, it's like if you look at companies that have similar frustrations every now and then you'll find a company that puts uh uses the cobra buckle on their bags it's mostly everyday carry kind of stuff like high-end um you know messenger bags that's more of a fashion thing they're super nice they look really cool and they feel cool um it's this big cnc machine buckle the issue mm -hmm. is they're literally designed for skydiving and other <laughs> you know kind of safety critical stuff so they're like 45 to 85 grams a piece. Okay. Uh, so if you put like five of those on a bag. <laughs> it's a pound. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so I actually bought a bunch of them and put them on some bags. And I was like, this is cool. But I wish there was something 
that was actually optimized for this use case where I don't need it to take thousands of pounds. I need it to take maybe a few hundred pounds. If you're listening to the podcast, I'm sorry, but I'm holding up uh, one of the buckles uh, that Austere makes on on the channel right now. I mean, it looks like a fairly simple thing. What What's something that I know that the average, like, I guess, person wouldn't pick up on that that was a point of, I know, difficulty? Um, yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> been a lot. Uh, so I think starting out, I figured sort of like what you said, you know, it's this isn't a new type of buckle, right? If you've tied a kayak to the roof of a car, you've used a very similar buckle. Um, those are die cast. Uh, die cast buckles tend to be very heavy as the metal cools in the metal die. You're pouring in molten metal. And as it cools, the crystalline structure that forms tends to be quite large and that makes it brittle. And so to account for that, they tend to have larger cross sections. You also need the metal to be able to flow through the mold before it cools. And uh, so they tend to be too heavy. But anyway, it's not a new type of buckle, as you mentioned. Um, so I kind of figured like, oh, I'll CNC it. I'll be able to make it lighter and still really strong. Um, so the first one I made that resembled a buckle uh, enough to assemble it. Um, when I load tested it, you know, even just by hand, you could actually make the webbing slip through. Hmm. And so, which I was not expecting at all. Um, so it turns out that like how the teeth uh, in those, in the buckle kind of interacts with the webbing and getting a good balance where it really locks onto the webbing when you pull it, but then if you pull these to failure, uh, the webbing tends to break first. Sometimes the uh, buckle breaks, but it tends to be the webbing. And then you want to actually, even if you don't load it to failure, you want to then be able to release it fairly easily, right? So mm -hmm. if you make it grab too well, when you load it, it's just going to jam and you're not going to be able to open it. Um, so make, getting that balance right uh, took a lot of trial and error. Um, so are are the teeth on the buckle, is it optimized to the webbing that you use, I'm assuming? It sort of is. Uh, we've tested with a lot of webbings. At this stage, we've gotten it to a point where it really tends to just hold um, pretty much anything. Um, yes, uh, but we did kind of start with this, but then we once we, it worked with this webbing, we kind of tried others. Uh, teeth were a big one. Um, also kind of balancing weight and getting the weight right um so we actually used to have a stainless steel pin before we launched it just didn't quite pass the sniff test like you'd hold it in your palm and these are like a lot of people kind of comment like when they get their hands on them they're like wow this is actually lighter than i quite a bit lighter than i expected so um but those ones when you held them in your palm you're it, it, you felt it it was kind of heavy so we switched to titanium I, I think just balancing the weight and function and getting that really dialed into a point where and, and always my guiding um, kind of North Star is what do I want? And, and that's kind of why we started with this buckle uh, was my major frustration with bikepacking gear. Most of the failures I've seen and most of the failures I've experienced with bikepacking gear comes down to the buckles. Um, they sure. just loosen over time. And then especially plastic buckles are typically designed to be loaded in a straight line. So I don't know if you've mm -hmm. experienced this where you like tuck a water bottle under a buckle and then you try to cinch it down and it doesn't really hold. Um, they just develop a lot less friction. So that was one issue. The other was um, kind of on like long single track descents, my bags would be bouncing around and then I'd cinch them down. And I'm like, okay, I want it tighter, but I also don't want to break. <laughs> <laughs> and I was kind of tired of that. So in Oregon, actually, I did the, a section of the Oregon Timber Trail and had that experience where I was going down a big descent, they're bouncing around. 
and then I overdid it and I snapped a buckle. And that was kind of uh, actually right before I bought this machine. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Buckles and zippers. Those are the, you know, yeah. the, the points of, uh, of frustration with a lot of the of bike bags, in my experience. Sp- one thing I like about uh, the buckle also is like the spring tension. It just feels like really nice and positive, but not so strong that, you know, you need like muscular fingers to, to operate them. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, Glad I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I did spend weeks on that um, <laughs> and testing with a lot of different folks. We actually made we started by winding our own springs, and that was partly to be able to get that kind of dialed in. And then, um, yeah, we obviously outsourced it at this point because, yeah, we were doing it by hand. <laughs> <They're>... <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't practical. But uh, it's sort of balancing the uh, spring tension with also you know, things I didn't know going in. Um, torsion springs, they have many cycles before they kind of get brittle. Um, and so getting that to a point, you know, we're around 10,000 reps or more, which I figure is about 40 years of like very hard use, like very hard use. So, yeah. <laughs> and then if you try to get it higher than that, um, this would thing would need many, many springs. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you basically have the amount of force it will, the spring will output has to do with the wire diameter, the number of coils, and the coil diameter. Thicken the wire, you decrease the lifespan. Um, as you increase the coil diameter, you increase the lifespan. And as you increase the number of coils, your total deflection of each segment of wire, if you can picture that, Mm-hmm. is less for the same deflection of the end of the legs of the torsion spring. So kind of playing with those uh, to get a good feel, uh, to have it like really feel positive, and then to get a really high life expectancy out of the spring. Um, yeah, it was, was a, a fun challenge. And actually, we, we were about to launch. Um, <laughs> and I was just like, let's see. So we were about to launch with a much stiffer spring. And someone was like, this is... R- maybe too hard (laughs) a softer spring and um yeah people people were kind of happy with it to me like after playing with it with a much stiffer spring it felt a little bit soft almost but i feel like Mm -hmm. yeah i I like so are so are you having the springs custom made for you or did you end up buying a a stock stock spring uh yeah more learning um (laughs) it is a custom spring they're quite complicated and there's a lot of tools that get set. And so it's a bit of a guess and check process to get a spring that's coming off within spec. And so it's basically like when you're paying for, for springs, you're basically paying for, you know, five hours of someone's time of a specialized person to set up one of these machines. And then you just, and then there's like marginal cost with, you know, you can see the size of these springs. Like it's not much to run, you know, you're paying for wire plus setup time essentially. Right. And so custom springs um, are just much, quite a bit more expensive, uh, unfortunately, because it's not, you know, some, some of these standard spring sizes, people have machines that are running those for, you know, essentially years. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, you're, you're almost just paying for material at that stage. And so, yeah, we, we had to go custom again. We couldn't find. So aside from titanium pins and custom springs, another, I think, unique thing about uh, the buckles is the color um was that a decision that you know you wanted to do early on or 
was it like a, a sales move? Like where where did the inspiration for for having you know nicely uh, painted buckles come from? So it was not really part of what I kind of set out to do. Um, some of the early prototypes, we finally got them on a bag and went for a ride, and I took some shots trying to kind of you know something I was going to show, and they're black buckles on a black bag <laughs> over black bar tape. And I was like, okay, A, this is a really small product. So it's already kind of hard to take like kind of lifestyle photos of, right? Where you right. don't the buckle. And so at that point I was like, okay, we need some bright colors so you can actually see what we're making. <laughs> the other thing is, and, and actually um, some of the friends I went to uh, design school with, um, they were quite surprised uh, to see me do colors because I was kind of the guy that was like, function first you know if it works it's fine like if you're getting away from plastic for aesthetic reasons you may as well take it all the way and see like what you can do with that so um at this stage i don't see yeah like some of the black buckles when people order black buckles it's like oh. <laughs> why <laughs> i i'd be curious to hear your feedback on this um you know we've gotten a lot of requests for uh anodized so we're trying to sort of figure out what what colors to do i don't know if you have any you have to do purple that's that's like the on-trend color purple or pink <laughs> for sure <laughs> um i mean i feel like uh i'd want uh something kind of like a bronze finish like a like a distressed metal that 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 would go well with anything has like a steampunky look um or like a oil slick again these are okay. like <laughs> awesome. yeah i think we're gonna put together a batch so we'll, we'll see what they offer like how have the buckles been received are you uh, surprised or is it you wish you wish it could go a little quicker very surprised i would say um i made it really to fit a very specific need um mostly a seat post bag and like attaching things to the fork you know, into bottle cages or something, or like the everything cages. Um, the reason I started with this was, yeah, again, just something I wanted to exist. I figured it would be a good thing to start with because it's a multi-piece assembly. So you actually have like tolerancing you have to hit so that the assembly goes together. And so I sort of figured we'd launch this one. People would be like, that is cool. It would be pretty niche. Um, and that we wouldn't really sell very many. And so I have a lot of other buckle designs that I've worked on over the years uh, that I'd love to get out, but it's just been uh, kind of crazy. Every time we increase our capacity, thinking like, okay, we're just going to get ahead of it. We're going to be able to make them much faster and uh, have time to do other things. And then uh, demand has kind of just kept um, increasing, which great problem to have. Um, we are tucked into a very small shop and uh yeah looking to grow probably get another machine um just kind of like this one's kind of running um not quite all the time but you know we're currently trying to get it to run overnight so that it frees up some daytime for r&d but then it's still like we're, we're probably gonna need a second one to run these so yeah so very surprised um with the reception people really like them um i think you know this wasn't really a category at all uh I, maybe that's wrong <laughs> you know i guess like ski straps i mean but... i feel i feel like there was like a little precedent there was you know the john's irish straps that rivendell sold and yeah. you know the yeah. belay straps were a thing for a while 
but this really like kicked it up a notch to, you know, it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, definitely, definitely surprised by how many people want these. Um, you know, you have some over there, so I'm excited to see how you like them. Um, but most folks, I guess we, we see a lot of people who come buy like one or two and then come back and buy like four to eight. Because uh, I think once you try them, they really just are very secure. So you cinch it down, which is really nice, I guess. I say weirdly because I think you don't realize how much uh, some other options are not doing that until you try something that is. I think that's like when people do the ski straps over the uh, like just a plastic buckle. I think people are like, wow, this is great. Like you just kind of click it in. Right. It's right there. <laughs> you know, this is awesome. Yeah. Um, the issue is like on a bike trip, I think having one or two in your frame bag, they kind of take up a lot of space. So with these, they're very light. Uh, just to give you a sense, um, like the jumbo ski straps um, that are like, I think they're 32 inches long. Um, those are around 64 grams. And then our three quarter inch uh, strap, 36 inches long is 22 grams. So almost, oh. you know, 30, like a third of the weight. Um, a little over, I guess. Um, and then they also just stow very small. We launched into the bike industry because it was just a thing I was passionate about and kind of knew the space, I guess. Um, and, but it turns out a lot of other folks have had very similar issues. So is the goal to uh, be like an OEM supplier for the buckles for, for other makers or... Yeah, we're kind of exploring where we fit in. Uh, I think that that was definitely originally the goal. Um, I think just in terms of unit economics of all that, I suspect like we have a couple manufacturers who are using them. I think more and more people will start picking up uh, nicer hardware. I mean, you saw the adoption of like Fidlock mm -hmm. uh, magnetic hardware, definitely more expensive than just a typical buckle. but I think that's sort of being picked up more and more. And over the last, I feel like three, four years, it's become quite common instead of like very rare. In general, people are a little bit tired maybe of buying something over and over that doesn't quite scratch the itch. And sometimes you're just like, you know, mm -hmm. I just want to like spend the money, get the thing I need. You know, we launched the straps partly to show OEMs that this is something that people you know, we definitely got laughed at uh, a few times when we mentioned, I, I talked to like, I have some designer friends at like the North Face. And so I just got on a call with them and I was like, hey, like, this is probably not something the North Face is interested in. But like, what do you think about this? And they're like, wow, that sounds really cool. Until I mentioned the price. And they're kind of like, I think you're kind of out of your mind. So is this kind of like, a, I guess, like a proof of concept that there's market demand for, for yeah. a really nice buckle? I think also from what we've learned with this buckle, again, this has, you know, three machined components on a spring. Um, I think there's going to be other buckles that we have planned that are going to be at a price point that um, might be easier for folks to integrate into their products and still be able to kind of sell it to a store that then sells it to a, um, to an end user. Right. I mean, at this point, like what, what could you do to get the unit price down just other than just making a crap ton more there's yeah there's there's just like there's a floor on what you can do i mean we could go we could injection mold <laughs> that, <laughs> that's what we could do 
um, or you can stamp it or you can die cast it. Um, if you're CNCing them, we're running one of the fastest CNCs you can get. And so there's not much more we can do in terms of equipment necessarily. Um, we are working on automation so that we can run the, the machine overnight. And that sort of, you're basically amortizing the cost of the machine over its useful life and how many hours it's producing. Um, and so the more hours it produces, the lower that kind of minute cost is. And so actually I have some, some bits, some future projects we're working on now is, uh, this is a flip station. Oh, let's see, get it in the frame here. So the part gets machined. So you start with a block of aluminum, basically bring a cutter in and cut away parts of the aluminum and then half of the body is machined and then we right now we manually flip that in a big tray of parts and then the machine comes in and machines off the back if that makes any sense that's so that's a manual problem it's how much uh how much runtime we can get between uh human kind of intervention and so the idea with this is the machine you know runs off one and then it goes into uh these are grippers so they move in and out and so then it comes in here and then this whole unit swivels 180 and then it goes right back into the machine and finishes you know a, a complete part comes off and so and so our trays hold anywhere from like 20 parts 20 blocks of op one and 20 blocks of op two um up to like 40 parts um, but with this flip station, we'll be able to put 40 parts on the machine or more. We're probably going to get up to 80. And then we're thinking of double stacking them on the trays. Um, and so that starts to get us into like a eight hour runtime. Um, then the challenge becomes, you know, yes, you made a lot of parts overnight, but are they good parts? <laughs> <laughs> and so things we're doing to mitigate that, um, you can do in-process probing. So another cool tool you can stick in these machines is a little um sphere it's uh has a jewel on the end it's a sapphire sphere or a ruby i guess they're ruby uh spheres and then it can come and touch the part and record the positions and so mm -hmm. you can sort of tell it like what is in spec and what is out of spec and so we might do like an inspection on every 10th part and then if it's out of spec it stops machining that's like a geometric test, right? It's not necessarily going to pick up like surface finish. So then you want to do like tool life management, like how many hours of or minutes do you have of a particular cutter in in like actually cutting aluminum? Have you had to swap tools already? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we do a tool break detect right now where after cutting with some of the smaller cutters, it goes and makes sure we didn't snap off the tool. Because sometimes when they get dull, they just snap. Other things, yeah, start to see much bigger burrs on some parts. And so then they go through tumbling and then we get them out and it's like, we can't, you know, this is not usable. It's normally after doing like two to 3,000 buckles. I think when you're, that's sort of job shop mentality where you're running like 10, 100 of something, you don't really count the tool life into your costs. But when you're doing mm -hmm. a thousand or, you know, 10,000, it starts to become, yeah, something we need to monitor. Yeah. So we actually that's really have a, cool. I mean, oh, sorry. Oh, as it's a, it's so fascinating to hear this. I mean, um, like Ian had kind of touched on it uh, when I when we interviewed him. Yeah, uh, he said that you were good at making your machine act like a machine inside the machine. I, I think like automation is really important um, to stay competitive just globally. Basically, freeing people up to do what people are good at uniquely good at over a machine you know a machine is actually quite good at tending the machine and making sure it doesn't stop 
um, but it is not that creative. So um, just around the shop, like we definitely try to make things more ergonomic and just easier for people to do. And automation is a big piece of that. And then we can kind of focus on uh, more interesting pursuits. So when someone, I guess, like box at the, the price of the buckle, like what's how do you how do you justify the price to, to that person? Uh, yeah, that's fair. Uh, if you don't, if you feel it's expensive, you're not wrong. It is expensive compared to, you know, a plastic buckle. Um, I guess if you look at other CNC uh, objects, um, these are actually quite inexpensive. So like other people who run CNC machines, um, you know, they'll comment like, how are you doing it so cheap? Um <laughs> So it's just like, I would say you get what you pay for. Um, it's just a expensive way of doing things. Um, and it has some benefits. And the big downside, I would say, is cost. So for me, like one thing that's pretty interesting is, you know, it's not, it sounds like what you're doing is beyond just, you know, conceiving of the design and, and manufacturing, but you play a really heavy hand in like optimizing the business and um, and all those things. And so you, you had experience in that in, in prior jobs? Um, yeah. So I actually, uh, right out of school, um, got involved in uh, the, the world of startups. Um, so <laughs> I did a startup um, with uh, a team of folks in water filtration for disaster relief. Um, very interesting. Uh, we did the whole, you know, go raise money um, and then launch a, launch a business. And then from there, I kind of, found the niche of helping people um, develop prototypes with an eye toward manufacturability. If you have a product, you're, um, it can be quite difficult to kind of get it to the stage of, of uh, pro proving product market fit is the big thing, right? And like how fast and cheap can you do that? I, I see two big, two big issues. One is folks who are developing a product in-house um, on a 3D printer or on something that isn't the method they're going to use for manufacturing, who don't have an awareness of what the eventual target process is going to be, end up needing a very complete redesign. That is is quite a stumbling block for a lot of folks. So kind of helping people with that process where it's like, okay, yes, we're 3D printing this thing, but it will be injection molded. So let's just understand like draft angles and uh, how many actions an injection mold and how that affects cost. So now we're that's going to cut assembly, but our first mold is going to be one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Like, okay, maybe <laughs> let's trade that. Um, and so just understanding that. So I've done a lot of different materials, from soft goods to like injection molded stuff, uh, machined components, um, composites. Like, just it's something I've always been super interested in, and I think even though I'm not necessarily an expert in, in them, just understanding like, okay, yeah, you should be looking at like stamped components and here's how we're going to design for that. And we're going to prototype by welding things together, but let's just understand like this, this is where we're headed. So helping people with that. And then also just working at a couple companies, developing products uh, that then went to mass manufacturing and getting to be a part of that process. Um, so I, I, I kind of saw a lot of different aspects of that. So I'm curious about that that step between you know trying to make something um, manufacturable. What's what are usually things that they get changed from initial design? Is it just like a, a matter of simplification? Um, so on a mechanical front, so my my 
expertise is definitely like the mechanical side of things. I tell people I know how to solder. I don't know what I'm soldering. Um, so on a mechanical front, I would say the biggest thing I see is like over constraint. And so designing assemblies that are over constrained drives up the need for precision and precision costs money. Um, as your tooling wears, like if you're doing punched parts, as your tooling wears a higher tolerance, you're going to get higher reject rates, probably, unless you're well within the tolerances of that process. So we've got a question yeah. here from Forager. Uh, are you are you considering moving out of the barn uh, <laughs> if uh, if when the second machine comes in? <laughs> so um, we, we can only see like a, a portion of the machine. Like how how large is the machine itself? Um, the machine. Let's see. The machine is about like nine feet by nine feet by okay. uh, seven, eight feet tall. So it's like a small shed. <laughs> people, when they see the machine and then they see these coming off of it, they, <laughs> they crack up. Uh, yeah, it's a little absurd. Um, the plan currently is to build a loft over this space. So we have about 300-ish square feet. Uh, so pretty tight. Um, and so putting a loft in will will bump that up by like 60%. And so right now it's all one floor. We have our CNC. Uh, it goes to tumbling, then to our uh, paint, assembly, sewing, shipping. Um, and so we'd probably move, um, you know, paint and assembly and possibly the shipping station upstairs. And then that would free up space for one more machine. The goal is to stay in the barn for another year or so because rent is expensive. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What does the machine weigh? Uh, this machine weighs, I think, 9,800 pounds. So wow. almost 10,000 pounds. Um, the other machine we were looking at was 15,000 pounds. Oh, dang. <laughs> so this, is, this is light enough that you can set it on like a four inch slab, which is typical for residential um, without it being an issue. Uh, yeah. Once you get into like fifteen thousand pounds, it's a uh, need more concrete. Uh, when you when the machine uh, got to the barn, was it brought in parts and assembled in the barn, or did it just show up in the truck? <laughs> um, so the way you get these machines typically, unless you uh, want to do your own rigging, uh, is you have the machine delivered to a rigging company, and then they deliver it, and they have insurance, and if they drop your machine, uh, <laughs> they replace it. You know, obviously there's a delay there, but. Uh, and they do it a lot. So, <laughs> so, yeah. so we just uh, paid someone to, we told them exactly where we wanted it. And then they just bring it in on a truck and they have a forklift that can, you know, take 15,000 pounds. Um, and, you know, uh, they didn't end up having to do it, but they brought some steel plates because I showed, like I sent them photos. So approaching the barn is over some like gravel. And if it's wet, it gets a little soft the weight of the plus plus the machine without sinking in yeah so that that's their that's their job <laughs> uh well i think i'm gonna wrap it up here we're hitting or we pass the hour mark um so thanks again for for being on the live stream yeah thanks so much for having me on um it's been fun